0: This is Lila June. Greetings, my kin and my people. You're listening to Neheje, Our Voices, Indigenous Solutions podcast. And I'm so happy to be here with Nicole Gonzalez, co-founder of Changing Women Initiative, which is an indigenous midwifery center, an indigenous midwifery training group, and just overall really works to revitalize the midwifery practices of our ancestors. And she's helped many a baby come into this world, which I think is just one of the most sacred, you know, occupations we can have on this planet. Um, And so I'm so honored to be with you, Nicole. Thank you for joining us. Um, Would you be open to please just introducing yourself a little bit to the audience, whatever you'd like to share?
1: Ah, yes. Yacht, everybody, I'm Nicole Gonzalez. Uh, my clans are and my family is from up in the Four Corners Shiprock area. I'm one of eight children. Um, I live currently in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And um, I am a nurse midwife and a nurse for 17 years and a midwife for 10 of those years or at least. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm a mother of three children um, who are all growing up pretty quickly. (laughs) And, um, yeah, I've been doing this work for a long time and just excited to be here to talk a little more about why I do this work and why it was created and all of that awesome, interesting information. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes. And where did you grow up? Where is your kind of area of origin? Um, I
1: grew up mostly in the Waterflow Four Corners area, New Mexico. So like Shiprock is like where part of my family is from. Upper Fruitland is where my grandmother's family is from. I went to school at Kirtland Central High School and graduated there and um, and then went on to get my, uh, my nursing bachelor's degree and my master's in nursing at the University of New Mexico.
0: Beautiful. And that's all in the New Mexico region, for those of you who are listening, um, or Four Corners area, uh, but we call it Denebuquea, the people's land. Um, So secondly, you know, what is the Changing Woman Initiative? I know that's a broad question, answer it however you will, but what is the Changing Woman Initiative?
1: So Changing Woman Initiative is um, basically a nonprofit organization dreamed up through the work that I'm doing as a midwife from about 10 years ago, it's crazy to think that it was founded in 2015 and we've been doing this work now for seven years, but it's really taken, you know, four years prior to that to just kind of plan and organize my thoughts around like doing this work. It's such a huge endeavor to even think about starting a nonprofit and just to think about, um, reclaiming traditional birth practices as a Native woman from New Mexico. And it was something that I didn't see was happening across the United States. I actually had to go to Canada to meet with Aboriginal midwives to connect with them and to to see that it is possible to reclaim our birth practices and that midwifery is alive and well and thriving in those Native communities up North. And that really inspired me to be like, hey, we can do this in the U.S. and you know the women here are not aware of what what they're missing out in in regards to their their birthing experiences and you know some of the stories passed on through my my grandmother and my mom and my aunts was like yeah you go to the hospital and they don't treat you well you know you're you're expected to be mistreated in that setting so there's a lot of stories around fear um and mistreatment in a hospital setting because many of our women birth at the Indian Health Services. And so there's a lot of stories of like white nurses um, getting after my aunts and family members for being pregnant and telling them to like shut up and be quiet that they got themselves into this problem and this place of pregnancy. Um, And it wasn't until I became a midwife that it was like, oh, you know, it's possible for us women to actually have very positive and empowering birth experiences and that women from other communities, specifically white women, were having these kind of experiences and they were choosing to birth at home and that they were just, they just had a very different perspective about what their body was capable of around childbirth. Um, And I wanted to um, bring those experiences back for Native women. And I definitely had to think about, like, how to do that, right? We all know the nonprofit model is not the most, um, friendly business model to carry any type of endeavor out. But unfortunately, you know, um, the capacity that I envisioned for the organization and what we were going to do really required that kind of a pathway, especially when it comes to fundraising and, and services, just because, you know, healthcare is expensive. Um, and that was one of the main reasons that native women were not choosing birth, um, in the home setting or in a hogan because it was expensive for a midwife to attend their birth. Like it's it's probably four to $6,000 for that to happen. And if they don't have insurance that covers that, then it's out of their reach. Um, and then also because of how the Navajo Nation is positioned in three states, um, it's really challenging to get healthcare to those areas where people might want to birth in a hogan or in a traditional fashion um and so it just made sense to create this organization where over time it's clear like we weren't just going to provide um midwifery care through our birth center and out of hospital experience but like we wanted to, i wanted to train midwives to become our native women to become midwives because there's also a lack of workforce and women who want to who understand how important this work is but also like want to be in their community providing care as a midwife Um, some of that really rich history around midwifery is like it's traditionally we were medicine women you know we participate in it in the kinoda ceremony we we participated in acknowledging like these medicine babies were coming forward and identifying who were the medicine people were going to be in the future so we played a pretty active role in our community Um, through puberty ceremony and medicine making medicine babies um, and that really shifted once hospitals came on the scene and of course there's a whole slew of events that happened historically that pushed midwifery especially our indigenous midwives kind of out of their place of power in the community Um, and away from that knowledge that would normally be passed on for women who could attend birth so like if you think about it like if you ask your family, like, where did I have my baby or where was I born? Who was there? A lot of women are going to say today they were, they birthed in a hospital. And so during those times where hospital births were pretty common and they still are, um, children weren't allowed on labor and delivery units. You know, sometimes at some point, husband's partners were not allowed either. And that shifted over time. And so like, where do women witness, where do our young women witness birth and where how does that look like? Um and unfortunately, until there is this kind of emergence of like TLC baby story type stuff like that, like maybe we get to witness on some aspects of birth, but even that is a very skewed view of like what birth really looks like for us as native women. Um and so as as I mentioned, I'm a mother of three children. I had all three of my kids in a hospital. And my own experiences being a young mother, I had my daughter just months um, away from turning 21. And I had all my kids before I turned 25. Like there was a really interesting experience around bring a brown being a brown woman being pregnant and mm-hmm. like how I was viewed in the community.
0: Right. Uh,
1: uh, yeah. And so like understanding like a lot of the women that I wanted to serve in my community were probably experiencing the same things I were. Um, And also like having this backdrop of trauma. And I don't mean trauma in the sense of like it's historical. I'm talking about like this division between understanding what the role is as a woman in their community and being respected um, and understanding the ties to the stories and to the songs, to their land. And because of boarding schools and because of feminism, white feminism, Um, And of course, some aspects of religion and faith-based organizations taking root in our communities, like Mm -hmm. Native, Native women have really been separated from our traditional knowledge as women. And so seeing that there were so many women hungry for that traditional knowledge to be passed on to them and like they're just ripe for that information, especially as they're growing their babies, like it made sense to have a nonprofit that would encompass all of these things, right? um and so as i started to develop the organization it started to form in my mind that maybe we wouldn't just be a birth center like that we would need to train midwives that we would also need to be involved in policy work and policy change around our reproductive rights um um, as well as like integrating traditional medicine um teachings and songs and herbs and like it's such a huge undertaking to even think about bringing all that back and, and bringing that together with with what I know and what, how I was trained, um, as a nurse midwife. And also it was like a process of learning and unlearning for me. Like I had to unlearn everything. I was right. Cause you were
0: trained to be a nurse from the, uh, the Western training way as well. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was trained in a hospital. It's where I've caught a lot of my births and my babies, um, early in my career. I shifted to home birth probably about two, three years ago. Um, and and I've really adapted more to a community midwife, which is very very different from how I'd practiced for ten
0: years. And what is the difference? I mean, obviously, this is a huge question, but what's the difference between being a hospital midwife, a uh, hospital nurse midwife, and a at home uh, traditional midwife? what what was what what did you feel when you transitioned to being at a home birth midwife?
1: Well, first of all, like um there's a pretty clear distinction on who is best to birth out of hospital and at home and generally it's geared towards healthy women so women who don't have drug addictions or don't have diabetes on medication you know women who don't have blood clotting disorders so these these medical conditions absolutely have to be managed in a hospital setting just because they're they're on medication and it affects their babies and it affects their birth outcomes and so when it starts to get into that phase of, um, I would say higher risk pregnancy requiring more, um, oversight and care, um, that's, that's the distinction, but for the home birth setting, because again, women are healthy, um, and, and, in, in the healthiness and in a sense of like, they're, they're knowledgeable about birth they're knowledgeable about what they want they have the skills and the language to advocate for themselves and what they want Um, as well as having a pretty clear vision of how they want their birth to go like that is very different um, than a hospital setting and also women who choose to birth at home um, are fairly good at communicating what their needs are Um, and so decision making is through Joint. We're in a relationship. We're making choices and decisions together. I'm not telling them what to do. I'm giving them information and options to make some decisions about their body and their birth, knowing that I'm going to be in their house, and I'm in their home, and I'm their guest, and I'm not, you know, dictating how things are going to go. Like we've had this nine months to have dialogue and relationship building as to how how I can best support their birth experience in their home. Whereas hospital birth, like there is not a lot of planning like that. You you go to the hospital, you sign documents saying that, you know, if things go wrong, like, like you're giving over some level of power to the doctor or midwife to make the decisions for you on what to do next. And so there's very little part, uh, a role that women might play in their birth experience because The expectation is like somebody else's else's responsibility to take care of them in a hospital. Um, I would say that's the biggest difference I've noticed, Um, as well as the language. You know, when you're in a hospital setting, you know, we call women patients um, like they're sick. Um, When you're in a home setting, like you might call them my clients client because they've hired you to be their midwife. Um, And even that term doesn't sit well with me. I mean, I prefer first names and like families or my people. Um, I don't think there's the best terminology when it comes to like taking care of and and also like defining and explaining that relationship you have with families. Like it's a you definitely have a deep connection to the families you work with in a home setting. Um, The other big piece is accountability. So if something terrible happens in the hospital setting, maybe the outcome was not expected for the baby and they have to be the NICU longer or maybe, I don't know, there's a process within the hospital where they evaluate decisions and everybody who is involved in that experience comes together and they talk about it Um, and it's contained in the hospital setting and maybe a practice might change or like you know, something usually changes if something like that happens in a home setting. Like if something um, adverse happens, like, you know, she has a hemorrhage or, you know, something like of that nature. um, Obviously she has to be transferred to the hospital, but like the accountability piece is like the community holds you accountable. So if, if so-and-so is saying, well, that midwife just went in there and pulled that baby out. And it felt very traumatizing to witness that, like that auntie or that person might go to the family and be like, you know, I was horrified by what I saw and I don't know if I trust this midwife. And so that word of mouth gets transferred to everybody. <laughs> and so right. that's, a very, that, that's a very different setting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so my my often my word of advice for families is like, make sure who's ever at the birth is someone you trust that they're involved and like they agree and are supportive of what you're planning to do. And also we usually have a planning meeting prior to the birth so that we can talk to everyone about who's doing what. And if we create an emergency plan, we have, you know, there's there's a communication of like who's doing what, which is super important. And we have the opportunity to talk about like what kind of skills that we have or what do we bring to birth. So it diffuses a little bit of that fear, which a lot of people have about birthing at home or in a traditional hogan further from the hospital.
0: Right. And what is the difference between, because there's a lot of midwives that are not Indigenous, right? Or midwife centers that are not Indigenous, which are still wonderful and they do amazing work. But what would you say is the difference between a midwifery center and an Indigenous midwifery center?
1: Um, I would say... Um, yeah, you're right. Every every center, birth center, midwifery model is a bit different because it's based on who you're serving and why you're serving them. And so, obviously, Seed so Changing Women Initiative is focused on serving um, Medicaid, low income, uninsured, Native, Indigenous folks, right? And that they live in urban and rural communities. And already, you know, serving that community means we have to be flexible. It means that we need extra funding to pay for services that grants won't pay for. It means that um, family involvement is a priority, that ceremony is a priority, that transportation is going to be an issue for families, um, that we are fully aware that trauma is going to play a role in our care. And so we have to tailor our language and even our consent forms to incorporate language that is Trauma informed, but also mm-hmm. in a consent way. Um, right. And so because we know we're serving a specific population, everything is tailored to serve that population. Right. And we have to be ready to flex or to change or to make an adjustment if things are happening in the community. So for example, COVID, right, is this big pandemic that happened. And we had to really accommodate and change our practices in a sense of like, a lot of the Pueblo communities closed their borders um, to non-native people. So we had to get documentation and approval from the council to be in their territory. And mm. also like making sure that our staff is COVID uh, vaccinated uh, because that was a requirement of the tribes that we were serving. And we had to honor their sovereignty. Um, and so that's different. You're know, right. Like that's not what other midwifery clinics maybe might may be doing. Um, there are other midwife practices that are maybe tailoring more to like um, a boutique style, right? Women who it looks like a spa and there's all these classes like yoga and counseling and breastfeeding. And um, they're required to come to these appointments. And these women that they're serving might or have insurance. They all have transportation. Maybe they all have an involved partner. They all have college degrees of some sort. Um, they have access to clean water. They have access to food every week. And so that is a very different group of people that you would expect to have good outcomes for birth because they have all of their basic needs met already. And so what makes ours a little different in an Indigenous sense of like, you know, we already know our communities are, are limited in some of these areas. And so that's where we're trying to provide service and care in a dynamic way so that we're meeting their needs um, the best we can, knowing that these basic things are not being met.
0: Right. And you've mentioned a few times um, <clears throat> giving birth in a hogan or hogan, you know, which is for Dene listeners, you'll know what that is. But for those who are not, it's a traditional ceremonial house. It has eight sides. It's kind of circular dome formed a little bit and it's supposed to represent the pregnant mother's womb. And it's an ancient architectural style that Dene people, uh, a.k.a. Navajo people, have had for millennia. And it's, you've mentioned that it's really, from your view, important to get uh, more Dene women giving birth in the hogan. Um, and of course, every different indigenous nation has its own traditional architecture, its own traditional ways of giving birth, ceremonies, et cetera. What do you think is the importance of indigenous peoples giving birth in their traditional ways, for instance, in a hogan? What, what is the importance of that versus uh, in a hospital?
1: Well, it's. Well, I was doing some research in my community meeting, talking to aunties and grandmothers about what that looks like for Native, for Navajo women. Um, And to find that, like, there's so much transition that's happened in the last 50 years that we've started to we've really transitioned to hospital birth. But like the understanding around birth being a sacred. Right. That is a huge thing. What does that mean? Like, we. We honor our puberty ceremony. We honor these age related transitions in our life and growing our children up in a Dene personal personhood way. But like, birth was not part of that, right? And so, like, starting them, starting these babies and these families um, off in a ceremonial way, in a traditional way with the prayers and the blessings. Of our ancestors and our um our deities like that is setting them up for life like that is part of their life of bringing babies and i think that historically how really smart that was for the u.s to a make u.s native americans u.s citizens right so they'd stop fighting us or we'd stop fighting them but like when you can control where and how babies are born, like that is the ultimate colonization control way. And so when you take away midwives and you take away our traditional healers and even just the basic understanding um, for our women that, that birth is a ceremony and we forget that and we start to be in the hospital and we birth our babies there, and we forget the sacredness of this process of bringing this baby into this world and all the teachings that come with it, like that is a real poverty and a loss of community and understanding of like our role in our space, in our communities. Um, And so being in a Hogan and choosing to birth your baby in a sacred space with your family and a space that's already respected because it's, it's respected because you do ceremony there. It's a connection to the ancestors, a connection to the land. It's also a um, a physical demonstration of the universe in our home, right? Like the fireplace has meaning, you know, the directions in which the, the door faces has meaning like everything in that space has meaning and an in, in relationship to the baby you're bringing forth. Like there's, even Hogan and songs that you sing to that baby as it comes through. And of course, my big thing is like how beautiful it would be for your baby to hear your Dene language spoken to them saying, I know I love you and I want you to stay. Um, And that's not what's happening in the hospital like that piece is missing. Um, And to be able to use your medicines, right? Like in a hospital that I practice at, many of them, like you can't burn sage or cedar because it's a fire issue. And then you have to go through all these, Things just to burn cedar or sage or go to a special room or whatever. Um, whereas like if you're in a, in your traditional Hogan space, like you get to do all those things, you get to make offerings as often as you need to, you know, your partner gets to come and go as they need to. Um, and so it's just such a different experience. And, and unfortunately um, one of the issues we've had with, with families choosing or wanting to have births and hogans is not everybody has a Hogan right? People have been displaced from home and they're, they're living in apartment buildings and they're living in trailers. Um, If there is a family Hogan, sometimes there's a dispute in the family and nobody wants to share their Hogan with this baby that's going to come forward because they're afraid. And it's just like, oh my gosh, we're dealing with like, like real day issues here because nobody wants, nobody has a Hogan and people don't want to share. And then also like some people are like, oh, I'm in the process of building my gun And once they tell me that, I'm like, you're not whole not going to be ready. <laughs> to say, because <laughs> I'm like, every time I hear that, I'm like, it's not going to happen. I'm like, because it, it's, it's a lot more work to erect. I mean, you know, you're building a gun right?
0: I've, cost, yeah, I've helped to build a couple. <laughs> yeah, it takes, it, it depends. Yeah, it can take a while.
1: The cost, the labor, the planning, like all of that takes time. And, you know, if you're in the process of creating that while well, your baby's growing in your belly and you you know you have the resources um and i say resources in the sense of not just money but you have people who know how to do this um and not everybody has that and so we we run into those issues and so it's it's not so easy mm-hmm. um to have a traditional hogan birth but also like women misunderstand like they'll they'll talk to me at like third trimester you know they've got six weeks or maybe eight weeks left in their pregnancy, which is two months. And they're like, oh, I want to have a traditional birth. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like this takes planning and preparation and relationship building with us. And your family needs to be present. And you have to gather certain things to prepare for the birth. And like, it doesn't happen quickly. Like you have to, we have to build a relationship too. And that, that does take nine months.
0: Right. Um, and sometimes and- we come from broken Family, so our family can't really be there always um, or on and on and on. I I, I appreciate what you're saying because you're trying to deliver this service to a community that has so many nuanced and complex issues that your average white doctor just wouldn't understand. Um, I think our mean, you know, annual income on Dene is uh, 30000 a year for the whole household, you know, which is hardly anything. Um, and that's the mean meaning half of our people are making less than that you know so there's just a white doctor who makes 100,000 200,000 300,000 a year would just not be able to understand the the very nuanced things that 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 our community deals with um, but that's very beautiful you know that we did used to have hogan births and like you said our people have ceremonies to this day that honor every um Phase of life, and yet the birthing phase, which is arguably one of the most important, has been cut out by the transition to hospitals. And so, bringing that back, I think you're right, is just so important. And and honoring that, you know, birth is sacred, and that everything that happens in the hogan is sacred. You know, like like you said, it's where there's no separation between oh now's church and now we're not in church. You know, like every breath is a ceremony when you're in the hogan, and everything is. Life is a ceremony in there, you know, and so I think that's very beautiful that many women are getting this opportunity to, um, you know, have their births in there now. Thanks to you all. Um, Is there anything else you wanted to say on that matter? I have another question for you, but I'm open to anything else. Yeah,
1: I think the other thing about the Hogan is the unspoken protocol of respect, right? You respect the space, you respect each other like, you don't go in there treating each other not right, right, you're not fighting with your partner, you're not fighting with your mom, and so it's, we, that's already built into us, right, and so, like, I think that's when that space that we're choosing to birth in has so much power that it it even changes how we behave, right, when I go into Hogan, I'm like, okay, I gotta go left, you know, and my voice is calmer, like, my body feels calmer, like, there is, a level in my body that it's already aware that I'm in this space that is sacred and requires respect. And so like everybody has that understanding when they're there. And so that is also the role of being in that space. Um, And you don't get that in the hospital setting.
0: Right. So how many babies do you think Changing Woman Initiative has helped to bring into the world? And, And what percentage of those have been home births do you think?
1: Um, So I would say about 50 so far, which I started, uh, I transitioned from hospital to home birth in 2019. And that first year, I didn't see very many women and we were slowly like increasing our numbers. Um, We don't have a birth center yet. We have a birth room, which is perfect for families who have multi-people living in their house or have transitional housing or live far away and would feel safer being closer to the hospital and it's been used that way. Um, so the majority of births are either in a Hogan or someone's home, um, which is actually uh, going very well. Um, there are, I would say, maybe four or five, I don't know, maybe maybe 10 of those births had to be transitioned to the hospital uh, for birth just because there are specific parameters in place by state law that we have to transfer Um, if, if, um, their water is broken for more than 24 hours, you know, there's certain things that we have to also abide by still.
0: Right. That is so cool. I'm so proud of you all. And it's so exciting that in your first seven years of operation, you, you've been able to deliver that many beautiful babies into the world in a traditional, in a traditional manner that honors who we are as indigenous people. Um, so we're almost done here. almost going to wrap up. I just have a couple more questions. Um, you know, I was born in an IHS Indian health service hospital in Santa Fe, uh, because it's free, I think for my mom at the time. And, and she really wanted to have a very specific kind of birth. She went in ahead of time. She gave them this whole note about how she wanted it. They said, okay, um, And then when the day came, they like forgot the letter or something or like none of the nurses or doctors were informed. And uh, anyways, it was this whole fiasco. Right. And so I was just wondering, uh, you know, you used to work in the IHS clinics. How did that inform your journey to becoming a midwife or anything else you want to share about your personal journey to creating a changing woman initiative?
1: I think I, I worked in Indian Health Services in Santa Fe for about two years because they paid for part of my mid- my nursing education, so I had to work for them. Um, and I actually worked on their uh, med surge floor more than I did in their labor loop delivery because there's that was closing at the time. Uh, I would say that was a big, transformative and monumental change for me because. Um, I witnessed, I witnessed native women's experiences be, uh, their, their requests not honored. Like I would hear some of them ask for pain medicine and they would be like, well, the midwife told me to walk or she told me to do this. And then it was too late for me to get what I wanted. Um, and I, and I understand like midwives, we, we really support natural, normal birth, um, but if a woman's asking for pain medicine at any point in her birthing experience she should that should be honored regardless of our own views and perspectives um, and i also witnessed like there was two conversations happening like you know IHS providers and um, midwives were pretty kind of patting themselves on their back for such a good job that they were doing but then i was going back to my community at the time i lived in san alfonso pueblo with my former partner and the conversations that was happening with women was, was like, I wanted pay medicine and they just detoured me and I didn't like that. Or I didn't feel like my birth was honored um, because maybe they didn't feel like they could advocate for what they wanted in their birth. And so that was a problem um, that I witnessed in conferences I went through to as a midwife student, like hearing again, this other conversation happening with, with white doctors and midwives who serve native communities around like kind of again patting themselves on the back for doing such a good job even though like maternal mortality rates are really high or breastfeeding rates are really low after three months like there's like specific data that is showing like there's something wrong still and it's not being fixed um and nobody seemed pretty nobody seemed interested in trying to address the issue they just had a lot of they seemed very interested in like just saying that this is a problem and nobody wanted to like fix it. Um, and so, so yeah, so like working at IHS for me was just a big, like an eye opener for me of like how, how much of a problem we, we had, um, and the lack of agency that native women have in their childbirth experiences, right. They just have all this trust, for the medical community to make choices for them. And I'm like, no, they're not making good choices for you. (laughs) And in fact, they're not even giving you all your options.
0: Right. And I think that there's this huge national conversation in the mainstream culture that says, oh, well, you know, it's it's so sad that we abuse Native Americans, but hey, they get free health care and they have casino money and blah, blah, blah when you know i've never seen a casino check in my life i'm 32 years you're 32 years old and the healthcare quote unquote healthcare we are getting is so egregious and like you said the um mortality rates among birthing women in indian health service is astronomical and yeah i just i just remember you sharing that at a heart of her nation conference you know with um seventh generation fund and just sharing like your experience working there was really uh, pivotal for you. And I'm really grateful that, sadly, you had that experience, but you saw, you know, what our women go through, what our people go through on a day-to-day basis in these in these clinics that are free. So we all go to them, but how are we treated in there? You know, and it's like, it's this weird power dynamic that's like, well, you're getting it for free. So just be grateful for what you get, you know? And and it's, of course, we're treated very poorly. Um, but on a more positive note, you know, what do you envision for Indigenous midwifery in the year, say, 2035, you know, 10, 12, uh, 13 years from now? You know, what 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 do you hope to see going on with Indigenous midwifery?
1: I think what's been really awesome to see, even from when I started doing this work 10 years ago and the conversation around Indigenous midwifery was not really happening um, it feels good to know that all the work that I've done has brought these issues to the forefront and that my, my journey has inspired others to, to undertake this work for themselves. And as I see people like, like the doulas we trained in Windorock, right, um, two years ago, we trained 40 doulas in a hogan um, with another organization called Zaca Doula, Indigenous Doula um, from up in Canada. And like five or six of those doulas right now have a collective in, in the gallup Windrock area. And we work with them now and they attend births with us. And they're starting to see all of these issues. Like I'm seeing lots of vocalization on social media from these women who who are at the births with us and are experiencing some of the racism within the hospital settings and transfers happen. They're seeing a lack of support from the community. They're seeing you know, WIC programs not providing breast pumps to women like they're supposed to and they're becoming very vocal about what they're seeing and and so that to me is like that wave of change that I hope to to create with starting changing initiative like it's happening um and so I can only imagine the next 10 or 20 years like we're going to see more and more women choosing midwifery uh, especially Native women choosing to become midwives. Like I believe right now there's like maybe two or three in Shiprock that are training to be midwives. There's two in the nurse midwifery program that I'm in. And so, you know, in maybe 30 years, they're not going to just be 20 nurse midwives in the whole United States. Like maybe there's going to be 50, right? And so I see that change happening. It's, it's a slow progress, but I see it happening. Um, and as far as like, it's also interesting to see like the look, the women that we're serving already, they're young women, they're like 20 to 35 choosing to have a traditional home birth, a traditional birth and a hold on. And I'm like, wow, I remember being that age and not thinking anything about like, like the pain, right? Like I'm, I'm afraid. Um, but these, these women are choosing to to heal themselves and their communities for their birth experience. And they do experience um, opposition from family and community about their choice. And there are like people who make them feel afraid because of the choice they're making. But it's amazing once they've chosen this and they birth at home and their family witnesses it, they're like, wow, we didn't know this could happen. We didn't know it could happen this way. What well, we were really missing out before today, or before this experience and then that has a ripple effect in the community, and then you start to see more people want to birth like that because it's it's they're respected
0: right, absolutely, and so, what would you say to your average woman out there? Maybe she's listening now, maybe she's pregnant, that's why she clicked on the thing right She wants to you know, but she doesn't have a traditional midwifery center around her or a community that's supporting her. Or maybe she does, and she doesn't know it. You know, what would you say to your your woman who is pregnant, whether she's indigenous or maybe not, but just wants something better than what the world has to offer? You know what? What is some advice you would give to her?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I know there's a lot of places outside of New Mexico where Native women or women in general don't have a lot of choices about where they birth and who they birth with, and the best they can do is, you know, be very consistent and persistent about what they need. So like, what's one of the things I saw with the white women women I worked with in the places that I used to work Like they're real bossy. Like they tell you what they want, what they don't want, turn the (laughs) light off, you're too loud. And so like I always tell my moms, I'm like, be a boss, like tell me what to do. It helps me make me makes my job easier when I know this is like where your bandwidth is and not to go beyond that. Like I can't anticipate your needs. I can't read your mind and nobody can. And so like be really a be a boss. Like tell them what you want. This is your body. This is your birth. And also like that birthing space, whether it's a Hogan or especially if it's in a hospital setting, like that is your space as long as you're in there and you do have a choice on who comes in and how loud it is. And if it doesn't smell like a normal safe place to have your baby, like you can change those things. Um, And so I would say nurses would generally will respect if you're bossy about what you want and you're clear about what you want. And you're aware of your your choices, um, as well as your rights in the hospital setting. You know, you don't have to say yes to everything. You can say no to the IV. You can choose to drink or sip fluids or whatever. I mean, it just, unfortunately, every hospital is different and policies are different depending on which place you're birthing. But yeah, just being very well equipped to be aware of your options and to say what your needs are and to like. Be a boss. That's the best advice I could
0: give. <laughs> that's that's great advice. And you all are trailblazing this, along with many others. I, I won't position you as like the Indigenous midwifery, because I know there's like a beautiful movement popping up all throughout Canada, you know, what we now call the U.S., all throughout Turtle Island, even, you know, Aviala. South America where um this is coming up but I hope that this podcast inspires indigenous peoples and all peoples throughout the land to to start dreaming big like you did and and create these spaces and and stand up for what you believe in um and uh it's very exciting that even though maybe some women don't have access to this that that we can change that we have that power we have that we can be those bosses you know <laughs> so um Uh, What advice would you give to Indigenous women or people in general who would like to get involved with Indigenous midwifery, who would like to be doulas, who would like to train in this way? Is there any resources you can point them to or training spaces or just in general, any advice you'd give to people who are interested in getting more involved?
1: Yeah, I know I've done some writing for Indigenous Goddess Gang about Indigenous midwifery. So there's that. Um, I still have two. Of my blogs that are up. One is called My Blessing Way to Midwifery that talks a lot about like just my personal journey of becoming a midwife. Um, as well, the many colors of changing woman, which is my second um blog I created after I finished midwifery school. And there's lots of like really good resources there that you can access um, with some information. Um, I know my friend Rhonda Grantham, she's a midwife from out in Washington. She has Indigenous knowledge keepers um, that she does training oftentimes for lay people to become birth assistants and doulas. And um, she's a really great resource. She's been a midwife for a long time. Um, We were hosting um, Indigenous birth worker gatherings for a couple of years, and we've kind of I know I've pulled back from that just because the work with CWI, I've got a lot more busier for me. Um, I have to be honest, like doing this work, I know it's, um, it's inspiring. And like, I know I'm a trailblazer, but like, it's really hard. You know, I just got divorced of a 20 year marriage you know, I'm, I've had to relocate to Albuquerque because that's best where we chose to serve people and be closer to the reservations. Um, there is a lot that I dictate and make decisions around my personal life. That is because changing my initiative is the center. Um, yeah. And I think, I think, you know, it's taken me 10 years to become a midwife, um, and every. Decision I made in that process of becoming a midwife and the knowledge I learned from my community and everything I read, and, and the beautiful medicine people like Rhonda, like um, Rita Gilmore, who has shared birthing knowledge with me. Like it's taken that long to do this and to, and to learn this for myself. Um, and so I don't feel like, I don't know if the average person can do it. I think anybody who's going to choose to do something for their community. Whether whether you know it's starting a birth center or a nonprofit like it's a huge sacrifice uh, on a personal level, and I think it's important for anybody doing this work to surround yourself with like very positive supportive women who are invested in your elevation into your leadership role, um, because too often I think in my path to doing what I'm doing and where I'm at now is I wasn't surrounded with good people. I didn't have women around me who wanted good things for me. A lot of times people come to you because they see you doing big things and they want to take from you and they want to take what you've created for their own mm-hmm. or they um, they benefit somehow from your hard work. And I think that's fine if, if you're okay with that exchange. But I think for anybody who, like you, Lila, you know, you know, doing this work when you're, you're out in front and sometimes by not by your choice, but because the work demands for you to be in front and to be a voice, you become a target and it doesn't feel good. And so I believe like this leadership elevation, um, process for any of us is it, it takes time because I think a lot of us have this feeling of like, um, imposter syndrome like why me you know am I good enough like I've definitely had all those feelings and then you get to a place of like yeah me you know and then you start to realize like all the amazing things that you've done that have gotten to where you're at and it's like yes I I am proud of what I've done I'm allowed to take up space my voice does make change I have done big things Um, I'm allowed to be this awesome amazing person doing this work and like I'm not gonna how do I say, make myself smaller because it makes other people uncomfortable. Um, And so that just takes time, I think, for anybody um, wanting to do things in their community. And, you know, unfortunately, lateral violence is a big thing in, in, in our Native women's spaces. And it's painful and harmful. And I know we've all experienced it on different levels. And so, like, I think my message for anybody you know, seeing me do big things, like it's come at a cost. And if you're going to do big things, it's going to come at a cost for you too. Um, But yeah, like say your prayers, like that's really what's gotten me to this place is like my family says prayers. We have prayers done for the organization. Like we, there's a deep spiritual root in who I am as a person that's grounded me and continues to ground me, especially as the challenges continue to come up with like the organizational growth and, who's going to be a part of that. Um, And I think it's really important to like set some really clear values of like how you want to work and how you want to work in relationship with people. Um, Because you can't assume everybody comes from the same place that you do and carries the same values of like um, being compassionate, right? Like that's such a basic thing, but that's something we don't do for each other, especially when we're working groups. Um, And so like being very clear, like this is how I want to work in relationship with other women and those that you're in close relationship if you're building a collective and moving the work forward. Like you really have to just A, be solid in yourself, have some very clear values that you're going to navigate from and just have some really good like communication boundaries of like what's acceptable and what isn't. Um, and so, yeah, I think I, that's, I, the best I could offer anyone um, kind of like dreaming big, wanting to do the work. It's like, yeah. I, you know, and, you know, Lila, you've done some big things, you know, and, you know, it was honored to be with you during one of your, your big ch- life decisions. And you kind of swung for the fence <laughs> in that situation. Um, and, like, you know, I think it's important for me to support you in that space. Like, I needed you to know that I got you. Like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. Mm-hmm. You need me in the middle of the night. Like, that's where I am. And, like, that's the kind of... Um, relationships that we need to have with each other if we're going Mm -hmm. to create and be innovative in the work that we're doing.
0: Totally. And for those who don't know, uh, Nicole was my nurse when I did a seven-day fast when I ran for office and, you know, I wasn't eating for seven days. So I was like, well, we should probably have someone on call. And, you know, Nicole very gracefully was super supportive and just brought me teas, traditional teas, because I was drinking fluids and Oh my gosh, so so supportive and helpful, and <laughs> yeah, definitely became a target. If you want to become a target, run for office. That's probably, <laughs> but um, you know, the the other option is just to sit idly and never risk anything. You know, and I don't think that's what we want to do either. You know, and I think you're right about this lateral violence. And I just watched a beautiful presentation on lateral kindness. Uh, by Sherry Mitchell, which was just so mind-blowing, right? She just talked about indigenous communities lifting each other up as a decolonial practice. Like, how do we practice kindness as a method of decolonization i was like wow that makes a lot of sense um and i think that you know everyone who's out there has big dreams it is true but just being an indigenous woman is being a target much less an indigenous woman who's gonna take the risk to follow her dreams but like i said the alternative is just to sit and not try and i don't think we want to do that either and if you go out there you get bruised to get hit you know what that's going to make you more wise and even if you make mistakes you know and it, it causes problems you know that's just a season and you will grow from that and woo, you know you get stronger and that's why a lot of the medicine women they say became medicine women when they were older when they were elders because by that time you had really lived life you had really been a mother you'd love your partner unconditionally and you know even through all their antics and you've you've been you've seen you've been around the block and so taking those swings and and taking those risks is a part of our learning process as as anybody right especially indigenous women um and i saw this woman driving today and she was just being a boss you know and there was part inside my head that was like yeah, girl, like you go, you know? And, and I just felt good seeing one of my sisters, even though I didn't even know who she was, you know, like just, just being strong in herself. And I think if we could get to more of that, where we see each other as sisters and we say, yeah, girl, like you go, instead of saying, oh, I'm not like her. I'm a da, 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 da. I don't let, you know, like tearing each other down. I know it's, such a complicated conversation. But in general, if we could just want each other to thrive, I think that would be obviously very good for our community. So you've been so generous with your time, Nicole. I, is there anything lastly that you'd want to say before we wrap up? Um, and thank you again so much for being here on Nihije.
1: Yeah, I, um, thank you for inviting me. I always love talking about changing initiative and my journey, but also like Every time I feel like I speak on a podcast or something public around, like this, like something new comes up. There's a new teaching, there's a new learning, um, and this development that's happening, not only in myself, but within the organization and the work. And and I see and I feel myself like also being more grounded and like um I'm okay with saying, like, yeah, I'm I am leading this work. Like I have done a lot for our communities, like change of initiative is doing amazing things and because we have an awesome team and my board of direction directors is amazing. Like there's, there's many battles we have fought within the organization quietly and privately that nobody knows about, but like these warrior women standing next to me doing this work, you know, that it means a lot. Um, and so um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak a little bit to that and just be really honest about like, The path and the process and like things people don't see right like you see this big beautiful organization thriving but like you don't know what it took to get there (laughs) you know and i i do enjoy i'm just one of those people who enjoys talking about process and like how decisions are made Um, that to me is very intriguing and also like where creativity comes from and what nurtures that and innovation and working together like what nurtures that like how do i create those spaces
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. That's a very Diné thing to say (laughs) like (laughs) that you love talking about process. I feel like our our people are so astute and we observe and we're very observant people. You know, we really like we really take a look at stuff and we really break it down and build it up and look at it holistically. And um, thank you for doing all that because because of, you know, what you have decided to do and your comrades, your colleagues and, and your board. And and the courage you've had to step up and and take a shot at your dream, you know, like there's so many babies who don't have to go through what I went through, what my mother went through, and that makes it all worth it. So Nicole Gonzalez of Changing Woman Initiative, thank you all for listening. This is Nihije, Our Voices, Indigenous Solutions podcast. And thank you, Nicole, for being one of those Indigenous solutionaries.
1: Yeah, thanks.
0: (laughs) Thank you.